Hey, this is Todd Stacy. Welcome to In the Weeds with Alabama Daily News. I'm riding solo this week without Mary as she is traveling to be with her family up north for Christmas. So safe travels uh, to Mary. But I'm pleased to be joined this week uh, by Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall. Mr. Marshall, thanks for coming on In the Weeds. Hey, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. And just to be completely transparent, we just we just had to take out an outtake because I originally uh, thanked the attorney general for coming on Capital Journal. I'm sorry. It's just it's muscle memory. No, I see. I thought you took it out because you introduced me as influential and entertaining. So I, I thought that was the concern. <laughs> we do try to. Uh, yeah, our theme is, you know, influential and interesting guests. And, and you are certainly both. Um but look, yeah, thanks again for coming on the podcast. I think you were one of the first guests I had on the podcast when it first started in 2019. It was like, I think it was Governor Ivey. And then I went up to D.C. to do like all the congressional delegation. But I think you were one of the first ones. We sat down in, there in your office really when I had no idea what I was doing um, in podcasts. And we talked a lot about UNC basketball and Michael Jordan and all this. And so it's great to finally have you back on. No, glad to be back. And yeah, that was a, a nice little roundtable discussion. And honestly, it's kind of nice that we can do it this way as opposed to maybe in your your other role where it's a defined set of questions in a limited period of time and just kind of be able to share a little bit about what's going on. Yeah, much more relaxed. Um, well, thinking topically here, we have, I mean, I've interviewed you several times over the last couple of years, and I think every time we've had to talk about redistricting. And um, so, but this is a, a different story on redistricting because I guess it was last week, um, some of the plaintiffs in the state redistricting case, right? The state uh, Senate specifically, that lawsuit, um, what are they, withdraw? What's the, what's the technical term? Uh, not all, but most of their um, complaints. Walk me through what happened. Yeah, you know, the, the complaint was initially filed challenging 33 House and Senate districts, really on two different grounds. One, arguing that those districts were racially gerrymandered. And number two is a claim under Section 2 of the budget. And we filed motions to dismiss on those. And frankly, Todd, that case has been sort of being held pending the other case involving the congressional districts. And uh, so really not much action until recently when, as a result of that filing, the, the plaintiffs withdrew uh, challenges to all but two districts. And those are two Senate districts and completely eliminated the claim of racial gerrymandering, which wasn't there at all, by the way, and it should have been dismissed. And so now we're simply left with two challenges to two Senate districts for which we feel like we have very strong defenses. And I know one of those districts is here in Montgomery, the Barfoot district. What's the other one? Well, the other is really a, a request to to create a new majority minority district up in Madison County in that in that area. I, see. I know that that had been talked about. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm assuming that your office is going to have to be involved in this litigation as long as those two um, complaints go forward. So, um, what? How confident are you that the state would prevail in its arguments? Is it is it any the same? What's the difference between these types of complaints and the ones that we heard about on the federal level that were ultimately successful? 
you know, the underlying legal theory is the same. I mean, they have to reach the elements of a Section 2 claim that, you know, we've talked in nauseam, frankly, about uh, over the course of the last year and a half. But yet it's in the context now rather than of congressional districts of these two limited Senate districts. And, and one thing that, that has happened and transpired kind of since the, the last major portion of the congressional case is a decision out of the Eighth Circuit that said that there was no private party right of action under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And that's obviously yeah. a significant movement. You know, and it's an, it's an argument that, that we're obviously making in this case. We were assisting in developing and fleshing that argument out in other circuits and other states. And, you know, we're very pleased, obviously, to be able to see uh, what what took place in the Eighth Circuit. Now, it's not binding on our district judge in this case, but but it at least is now uh, one circuit that has embraced that argument that, that we'll have to carry forward regardless of the outcome of this case. And then beyond it, it's it's going to be some of the same factual claims that, that, that we've made before. And Todd, one thing, that, you know, go back kind of bigger picture on redistricting. And you and I talked a lot about kind of what was the approach from a legal strategy and, and at least the, the efforts of the legislature when they were passing this district is that sometimes people were viewing our efforts uh, in the congressional case within the, the limited scope of, of that case alone. And we're not considering you know, to the extent that we took a legal position in that case, would it potentially be contrary to the arguments that we can make in preserving the current Senate map? And uh, frankly, in, in the way that the, the, the Alabama legislature responded to the congressional case was very consistent with kind of the approach that we believe, you know, we should analyze the, the, the current case involving the, the, the House Senate or the state Senate districts themselves. And so, Big picture for us, it was looking at, at all of the cases in which we were involved and not just the limited one involved in the congressional districts alone. Okay, so that I, I haven't heard that before. So um, so if any of your arguments in the congressional case would be inconsistent with the arguments you're going to make in the state Senate case, then they could, I guess the plaintiffs could use that against you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just as uh, what we see going on, you know, at a state and national level that, that we have the ability to do on our end. For example, you know, you look at and I think, you know, we were involved in the South Carolina challenge that was up at the United States Supreme Court involving some of their districts. And uniquely, for example, the, the, the same lawyers for the plaintiffs in Alabama were involved in the South Carolina case. And one of the arguments they made for uh, what they believed was an unconstitutional map was the fact that in South Carolina, they uh, drew a map that connected their coastal town to those that were 150, 200 miles away from that particular area, arguing that connecting the water to those very much inland uh, were, were very much different communities of interest and in, in, in part of their claim to tell the judges to why they believe they should prevail. Well, if you look at what happened in Alabama, what did we do? We connected our coastal town to Phoenix City, right? And so, you know, you, you got to approach this from, from the standpoint of consistency in your legal arguments. If not, I think it mitigates against what, what it is that you're claiming. And so, again, it was something for us to consider. And as part of how we were evaluating our defense of these claims, look, I think 
if you ask Will Barfoot, he wants to make sure that we are entirely consistent in what we're doing, uh, and we have been. I don't want to dwell too long on this, but you did mention that Eighth Circuit case, which was really fascinating. And just you can probably state it better than I would, but yeah, essentially ruling that no private entity, which that's typically who sues on redistricting, uh, or just any you know Voting Rights Act case, you know, has the standing basically to to bring a suit. And so obviously this would go to the Supreme Court. Do you see a scenario where the Supreme Court would uphold something like that? It seems like it would have consequences far beyond voting rights, but um, standing in general on a number of different uh, levels in terms of private versus public. I mean, would it would it, ha would it have to be an attorney general that brought a case or a solicitor? Yeah, you know? Well, clearly for for this argument, yes. But but the the way in which this this um, has arisen is really just the very specific language of Section Two and how it is that Congress framed that statute. Um, what we believe is that they were looking solely to the Department of Justice, that being through the Attorney General, to initiate these claims. Because if you look at, I mean, remember the preclearance argument before, right? Is that when we look to add the responsibility to evaluate the particular proposals from the states, it was the Attorney General's office that, that were engaged in that particular review. And so I think it really is more of an arrow argument than broad in the way that you characterized it. And it really relates most specifically to the, the statutory language that we're evaluating here. Hmm. Okay. Well, we will wait until the new year to talk about redistricting again. Hopefully <laughs> it won't come up for a while. I'm tired of writing the word. Um, switching gears, I want to get into... We obviously have a legislative session coming up, and I want to ask you about that. But y'all had some successes in last legislative session, some criminal code um, reforms. Uh, you also had some interesting, um, I guess you'd call them accomplishments for this year. You had the um, prosecution of uh, the, the, or the conviction of McCraney down there in Dothan, uh, the double homicide cold case that was a, a huge deal. Um I think one of the biggest things that's ongoing going forward is the the uh, opioid settlement, right? They're, they're, we're having meetings in the state house weekly about the you know hundreds of millions of dollars and where all they're going to spend that. Um, so talk about this last year before we get into next year. Talk about this last year that y'all have had, and you know, do you feel good about uh, the performance of your office? Oh, I feel really good about our office. You know, and. Todd, it's, it's hard to believe it's seven years almost now for me. And um, one of the things that I don't think, unfortunately, the people from the outside have the ability to, to completely understand is just the team that we built out here. I mean, I've got some amazingly talented people here at the AG's office that could be working a lot of other places, doing a lot of other things and, and probably making a lot more money. Um, but yeah, they believe in the mission. They, they've embraced the vision that I've had for what I should be as an attorney general and what we should be doing on behalf of the state. And so I think a lot of the, the success that we had during the last year is a, is a little bit of a reflection of that. You, know, you mentioned um, the McCraney case. You know, that's obviously personal to me um, in that you know, I was the one that, that went down and tried it along with uh, one of the fine lawyers from here, but it was interesting and even how that came about. I mean, we, we didn't have that case to begin with. And 
you know, for those of you that, that are listening that don't don't know, I mean, it's a 24-year-old cold case involving two 17-year-old girls that were shot and killed in the trunk of a car. And uh, it was just an unsolved case in which in Ozark and in Dale County and the Wiregrass, there were kind of rumors and innuendo over the years as to who was involved and what may have happened. And I mean, Todd, you know, small towns, right? I mean, the stories can get rampant and particularly in a case that long. And it was as the uh, tragic uh, accident of the, the supernumerary DA down there is involved in a bike wreck and was hurt, uh, unfortunately survived, but really injured badly that we get the call last, uh, basically December to say, can you come in and help? And, and, and we took it on and I took it on personally. Um, and I mean, you know, a little bit about my background. That's kind of where I came from and trying to yeah, you, you dust it off your, your prosecutorial yeah. boots. Yeah. And what, what was amazing. And, and look, if you ask me the, the, the personal highlight of the year, you know, it was turning around and seeing the faces of two moms when the jury came back and found McCraney guilty. Um, you know, that's something I will, I will never forget because, you know, when I first met them, you know, they obviously were concerned about when this case would get to trial and the fact that we had new lawyers involved. And I just said, trust me, and we will, we will do everything that we can to make sure that we find him guilty in what was a difficult case because it was you know, highly circumstantial just because of the nature of the evidence that was there. Um, but the one thing that, that uh, you know, as a leader that sort of was struck by and in, in, in some ways was reaffirming is sort of the postmortem to all that when I had uh, two different individuals write me and say, um, you didn't have to come do this because it was hard. And the fact that you chose to do it personally and to see it through fruition said more about who you are and what you're about than anything that you could possibly do. And that that meant the world to me because it was a hard case. And it was probably those that, you know, if I had political advisors around me, they'd say, stay away from it. But we made sure that that we did what we had to do. And it was a message also to the people that work here for me is that, that I'm willing to do the hard things and the hard left. And so um, McCraney was a big deal. Mm, absolutely. Let me ask you about opioid uh, settlement, because, uh, again, you took a little bit of a risk in this situation because many other states are waiting for the big one, right? The big um, national, I guess you'd say, opioid settlement. I guess it's been litigated multiple places, but they're in uh, Louisiana. Uh, you went and negotiated your own settlement for the, the state of Alabama. And um, the reason I think that's interesting topically is I've been following this Slackler case that is moving its way up, basically trying to figure out whether or not, you know, they will have, uh, you know, individuals can sue the family going forward. I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a mess. Nobody knows what's going to happen really with the, with the, um, with all that legally, maybe you have some insight on that, but it seems like it's dragging that big national settlement out. And so I think it, it counts as a win for you. Um, again, a risk because, you know, do you lose out on any money, but, but that money is coming and is here and is already being discussed in terms of doling out and, and targeting and everything rather than waiting. So am I getting that right, at least on the surface in terms of we're seeing now why it was wise not to wait? Yeah, and I'll, a couple of things, and I'll 
sort of first $249 million alone last year is what we have reached agreements on and working on um, kind of the final paperwork. And so, you know, huge lift for our team. But from a national perspective, there were there were basically four national settlements, one of which involved Johnson & Johnson, and the other were with three different distributors, McKesson, Amerisource, Bergen, and Cardinal. Um, and I was one of three states that said we're not going to be a part of that national settlement. And the reason why is... First of all, with three of those, it were 18-year payouts. And Todd, if it's a public health crisis, which it is, then resolution needs to be a lot sooner. And we need to save lives now and not be worried about what's happening 15, 16, 17 years down the road. And the other was I just didn't think that Alabama was being treated fairly. That, that was an argument between me and my colleagues about how money should be distributed when many just really want to use a population-based formula. And I thought it needed to be based on what the problem was in your respective states. The fact you got a lot of people doesn't mean you have as bad an opioid problem as others. And so we said, we, we think we're going to make Alabama's case and do it outside of that context. And we've seen so far that to be the right decision. The J&J &J settlement, for example, on the national deal, it would have taken multiple years for that to be able to be paid out. We went our own and J&J &J paid us a lump sum. And that right now the legislature is distributing that money on McKesson, I think it would have been roughly $120 million we would have gotten over an 18-year period. As a result of the settlement, we got 142 payable over nine. That's a win in my book. Um, and you know, right now we have pending the other two cases in Montgomery Circuit Court, uh, working through right now, resolving it. And I think next year we'll be able to decide, did I make the right decision or wrong? Um, Todd, you know that this hair of mine keeps getting grayer. And this is one of those things that, you know, when I think about taking Alabama out on a limb, I know that that rests on me. And to some extent, if you want to evaluate my uh, accomplishments as attorney general, if you want to evaluate me as a leader, if I'm willing to take that risk, then I need to be able to show the reward back for the state. And I think we've done that with J&J &J and McKesson. We'll see whether or not it comes true with the other two. And then people can decide whether or not we made the right call. I feel good about it. And I feel confident, particularly if you look at what we've already done, that it was the right decision. Uh, but I think we'll see the fruits of that moving forward. And then, look, the, the Sackler family is the one that had Purdue Pharma, which is truly the most um, offensive in all of the, the opioid litigation. And they've just simply used bankruptcy as that shield. And we'll see what the United States Supreme Court does. They were evaluating that bankruptcy plan. But, you know, it's kind of interesting that we talk about these two issues McCraney and then the opioids, because both of these were personal to me. You know, one, just getting to know them, the family of, of JB and Tracy and wanting to make sure they provide justice. And then I think I've been pretty transparent about why the opioid issue is also personal to me. And that when I look at sort of in 2023, kind of have I delivered on the things that I'm the most passionate about? Those are the two areas that I probably think about the most. Hmm. Wow. Um, well, speaking of opioid, have you been following at all the uh, commission and their discussions about how to use that money? I know there it's pretty preliminary um, and it's kind of a almost like a public forum discussion phase. But, are, you know, what is your role in that um, in terms of how that money gets spent and, and, and allocated to, to the most effect? 
Yeah. So we we took the position very, very transparently to be able to say our global role is let's be the state's lawyers, recover the sums that we need to solve and deal with this problem, and then allow the appropriators to make that decision. You know, remember that basically half, that's a little bit of, an, of a generalization, but basically half have gone to the cities and counties. So they have the ability to make their own decisions. And then what is coming to the general fund uh, is led by this commission. And by the way, kudos to Rex Reynolds. Um, Rex and I, first we go way back, but um, he's been very thoughtful, very deliberate in kind of evaluating what we need to do. And, and sort of part of my sort of emphasis with him is to look both short term and long term in that, you know, this money is coming not in lump sums by and large, but but over the period of time. And so we're going to be able to project how much money the state's going to get over the next decade. And then let's prioritize those things that are going to save lives. Where is it that we're going to get the best bang for the buck? Not creating some bureaucracy, not kind of filling brick and mortar, but as much as where is it that we're going to have the opportunity to invest funds where things right now are, are proven to be successful. And I think we've had proposals from many people about where this money can go. The other thing that we didn't talk about is when we settled these cases so far is unlike tobacco and Todd, you've seen how tobacco money has been sent from everything to fill holes in the general fund years ago to building bridges you know, we wanted to put uh, some some flexible guardrails around this to say it's got to be spent on abatement, basically prevention, treatment and recovery for those who are suffering from opioid addiction. And so we, we've given them a broad framework that they got to spend the money in, but also given them remarkable flexibility of where they've got to go. And so I'm actually going to speak to that group here uh, in a few weeks when they meet in January. But th- part of my mission is... We also need to understand that, that there's no kind of universal to this, that every jurisdiction, every part of the state kind of has felt this crisis a little differently, that what maybe they're facing in Walker County is not necessarily the same that they're facing down in Greene County. And let's make sure that we somehow or another are identifying where the intensity is. Let's find what's working in that area. And then let's try to drive resources in ways that we save lives. Hmm. Well, speaking of the legislature, uh, we've got a session coming up in about seven weeks. And I mean, it'll be here before we know it. This always happens when they have early sessions because it's, you know, here, here we are, basically the Christmas season that everybody leaves for a while. It's, it's kind of slow. We're going to come back that the first week of January and it's going to be one month until session. So we're all kind of getting our ducks in a row here in the state house. I wonder what you had on tap. What, what's your legislative agenda going to look like uh, here in 2024? Uh, if we look back at 23, it was the, probably the most productive criminal justice session that we've had. You know, we were able to kind of fix a hole and the good time law that ultimately allowed Brad Johnson's um, murder to be able to get out and appreciate the legislature's effort on that front. Uh, April Weaver was very helpful on that. And then, you know, that we were able to get with all but four votes in both the House and the Senate, the criminal enterprise bill passed that is allowing us to now give law enforcement a tool to to deal with sort of gang activity in local communities. So we felt really good about what took place last session. This session, a little bit wasn't of a there also a, a, a Wasn't there also a shoplifting bill or was that the same thing? Yes. Yeah. 
Now, that was organized retail crime as well. And the DAs and the Retail Association were, were huge proponents in being able to get uh, that passed. And, and right now, give the DAs a lot of credit. We're working with them to do training around the state to make sure that law enforcement knows about kind of the new ability. But there's an overlay definitely between the two. But this session, yeah, I'm just saying because that was that was a, continues to be a huge issue when you talk to retailers, shoplifting. So I just I, that came to mind, and I wanted to note it. Yeah, definitely go go together. And this time, uh, one, you know, I think we, as a result of the case that everybody knows involving Carly Russell uh, up in Hoover, uh, want to make sure that we we get a legislative fix there to create a, a huge disincentive for someone to do similar activity. What we know took place there. And then really now kind of a, a recent arrival of something that, that nobody anticipated, and that is this uh, AI-generated child pornography. I mean, literally this week alone, we've had three phone calls where circumstances up in North Alabama and down in the Black Belt where we've seen this take place. And although I think our, our current statute will allow us to move forward on this, there are probably some gray areas that we can work to to sort of nail down uh, all potential problems as a result of this. And so definitely going to work with the legislature to try to make sure that we we address this problem moving forward. So AI generated child pornography, that is quite a concept. And I would imagine there are some legalities there that, you know, some, some gray areas. So, um, wow, that's something to to follow. Hey, uh, Todd, uniquely, 54 attorneys general across the country all came together here about two weeks ago asking Congress to likewise weigh in on this. And so if we can get unanimity among me and my colleagues, both nationally and, and those from the territories, then obviously that should be an issue that people care about. Yeah, that doesn't happen a lot. I mean, usually it's kind of partisan, right? One, one way or right. the other. So that's interesting. So in your uh legislative agenda, both uh, this past session and into the new session. I, so I didn't hear, there's one thing I didn't hear. Is that no no bill, no comprehensive gambling bill coming from your office? Uh, <laughs> you're not involved in that? Not involved. But not on your plate? Paying close attention. But, you know, this is one, and I'll, I'll back up. You know, if you think about the gambling issue, this is clearly not the the something new. It's been around a while, but but what my direct involvement is is the enforcement arm and have responsibility in that. I'm not kind of the single enforcement mechanism. Really, it's cities and county at the local level to be able to do that. But you know, historically, what's going on. And, and look, within four months of my tenure as attorney general, there was uh, enforcement actions taking place that have continued now throughout my time as recently as in Lowndes County the other day for shutting down Whitehall for what I think has now been the fourth time. Um, and so, you know, we have a very specific role here and we'll continue to be vocal about what that looks like. Um, but, but there's no doubt that as those come together to look at what happens with gambling moving forward, nothing changes with me unless and until the law changes. And, and right now we're going to make sure that we do what we can to help on, on the front of enforcement. Yeah, and I spoke to Catherine uh, Robertson, your chief counsel, at length about that on Capital Journal. Um, and so, you know, plenty was said about that, especially working with local law enforcement and all that. 
you know, this, but this is probably going to be a pretty big issue this session. There's, you know, today we reported on, you know, API coming out with the, and their opposition. You're going to have different groups come out. It's all happening again. So, and I understand your posture, especially with on the law enforcement side, but I'm guessing that you sometimes do or will have lawmakers come to you to ask to weigh in. Is that something, I mean, is that something you do or, I mean, I don't know. How does that work when they come yeah. to you and say, well, Steve, what, what do you think? So a couple of things there. I mean, look, there's, there's no hiding the fact that I uh, oppose the efforts to expand gambling. So let me just make that on the front end. But whether I feel that way personally or not, it doesn't take away of what my responsibilities are under the law. And, um, and so to the extent that we're asked you know, about enforcement, you know, I would clearly say that, that we have the ability to raise the, the punishment that goes along with it to create a disincentive for those to engage in this behavior. You know, when it's misdemeanors alone, that is obviously a concern. But also, I think we still have sort of this crisis of leadership at the local level in just the enforcement piece alone. You know, let's take Jefferson County. You know, when Michael was there, we didn't see these uh, sort of shops that have opened up under the guise of electronic bingo, which, by the way, is not an unsettled question. I think the Supreme Court has said on multiple times to the point of frustration this is unlawful, but yet you have those that still want to somehow or another say, well, I don't really understand it. The law is clear. And I think we've made that abundantly clear from our office. We have the ability to enforce those laws and it's the responsibility of local officials to be able to do that. And so um, we obviously welcome the opportunity to talk with those that are, that are evaluating this and we'll continue to have those discussions. Um, but we also are in a republic in which we have those that are elected to be our representatives and they have the ability to debate these issues in a public forum. Switching gears, and I know we're going a little long, but I appreciate your time. There's this interesting case in the federal prosecution of former President Donald Trump. And I should clarify the, the federal D.C.-based uh, prosecution of uh, Donald Trump, the Jack Smith case, right? And so there's this question that's coming from the Trump camp, um, but but put to the Supreme Court from the prosecutor as to basically immunity, I guess uh, almost like this executive immunity and, and whether or not the, the case against Trump can even go forward. And so, you know, it looks like this is going to the Supreme Court, but I understand that you may have an opinion about this case that you're, you, uh, with some fellow AGs, want to press. Yeah, I mean, the question of presidential immunity is obviously huge um, in this case, but also broader than that, too. I mean, you know, we're establishing precedent from this case moving forward. And uniquely, you see a special prosecutor who more than 30 months after the incidences which are contained in the indictment is suddenly moving for prosecution and trying to set a trial date for the middle of a primary election. I mean, prosecutors aren't supposed to care about, you know, the political process. They're there to secure justice for the case in front of them. And here you have a special prosecutor trying to leapfrog the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and their consideration of President Trump's um, issue involving presidential immunity and ask the Supreme Court to take it on directly. Not only is that almost unprecedented, but it clearly is beyond what I think is is the role of the prosecutor in this case to somehow or another try 
to keep a trial date in the middle of this election. You know, they're still going to have the ability to try the case. And one of the things that the Supreme Court likes and, and is sort of the historic practice is to allow the appellate courts to flesh out these legal arguments for them to be able to review. And for somehow or another using you know, the, the guise of the election as a vehicle to supersede the traditional process, we think shows what is going on and has been going on here for a while is the, the, the Biden administration is trying to use the, the sort of the trappings of government to assist in his reelection campaign. And so, you know, we've led a brief on, on this particular question, urging the Supreme Court not to hear it in this extraordinary matter and to allow the D.C. Circuit to be able to consider this first. They can decide to hear it down the road if they want to. You know, many of my colleagues have joined on this, and I think it's a very important issue. That's interesting because I can kind of see it both ways. I could see, you know, wanting a speedy trial, it, you know, to happen before the election as a as a positive thing for somebody on trial, right? Like, well, let's yeah, let's get this over with so the voters have more information, everybody has more information. Um, so, I mean, is there that consideration? And I mean, do, doesn't this kind of thing happen a lot? Not just at the U.S. Supreme Court, where I know that there's sometimes what do they call it? The uh, emergency docket or whatever. Things go bypass the um, the circuit courts, you know, right to the Supreme Court if there's truly an emergency question. So I guess they're kind of treating it like that. So I guess, isn't there some precedent for that? No, I mean, Todd, this is very different than what would go to the shadow docket. And I'll use our redistricting case as an example. You know, the shadow docket is the vehicle through which after um, the initial decision was made, to deny our request for a stay, to be able to go to the court, not for a final judgment, but to, in fact, impose a very temporary remedy that then would allow the courts to flesh out the case. And if you saw what happened in ours in the redistricting, again, they stayed it, but yet the court eventually heard it, but that was down the road. Here, they're trying to short circuit what has been the traditional way in which courts, the Supreme Court grants cert and here's cases uh, to basically skip one of the steps. And the shadow docket is a, is a very different creature. And then remember, speedy trial belongs to the defendant, not to the prosecution. And the Trump administration or the Donald Trump's legal team is the one likewise that is seeking the D.C. Circuit to have that appeal. Yeah, and, but they, they also seem to want to delay this as much as possible, right? And so that, it's, it's that weird thing. Normally you would want a speedy trial in this case, They'd like as many re appellate reviews as possible. Please take your time on this case, which is interesting because it's in, in just kind of politically speaking. And thank you for letting us know um, this is kind of some breaking news on that um, brief. Um, what was interesting about this just politically, what I've observed, and you don't have to respond to this or anything, but really it's these prosecutions, these indictments that have really resurrected Trump, in my view, because if you go back to a year ago or, or more, maybe not even a year ago, all, a lot of these other candidates were more competitive against Trump in the primary. Once that, well, first it was Mar-a-Lago, then it was the the brag thing in, in New York, which, every, I mean, that's just laughable on his face. And they started to pile up. And I think you had this sort of rally around our guy effect, which, which to, to me has completely just impacted this race more than anything else. So if they're, if, if, um, if their idea was to use prosecutions to keep him from being president again, it, it, it may, it may have backfired. 
Well, I mean, you and I both heard him speak in Montgomery, and one of the first things he said was, hey, if I get indicted one more time, I'm going to make sure I nail down this election. And look, his number. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an indictment away from nailing this thing down. While I have you, I, I can't let you go without asking about your political plans. I know it's just 2023, but we are at the end of 2023. Um, but you're term limited as attorney general. As you mentioned, you've been in the office seven years already. Um, lots of people look at your career and think, you know, what's next? Is it a run for governor? That makes sense for a lot of people. Is it some other office? Um, you know, just given that you're term limited, what are your considerations there? I mean, um, maybe it's too early to be making plans, but lots of politicians start pretty early. Yeah. Hopefully I'm not that normal politician. Right. I mean, in that I get asked it every day. I mean, literally as I go around the state, it's the question that people want to know. And uniquely, we just had our Christmas party here at the office. And I was telling folks that I understand that, you know, my term has a limited window and my thought is not, what am I going to do afterwards as much as what am I going to do to maximize every day that I'm here? And truly that is the focus. But the one thing I guess Todd, I would say is, you know, 2001 is when I became DA. Remarkable privilege to be the voice for victims in law enforcement. Never would have thought I would have become attorney general. And look, if there's anything about Alabama politics that you can predict is it's unpredictable. And, you know, who would have eight years ago said I would have been the attorney general now for seven years. Um, but I'm motivated by service and that is and remains something that is a very strong passion and desire for me. And I know that as I look to what sort of my future may hold, that is where my focus is. And so what that looks like and where it'll be, I don't know. Um, but I don't feel like I'm done and we'll see what that next step is. Okay. Well, look, I really appreciate your time. A, a great way to end the year uh, for this In the Weeds podcast. One of the, one of our first guests being one of our being our last guests for 2023. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, thanks for your time and Merry Christmas. You too. Thank you. Okay. So the Attorney General has left the studio. By studio, I mean there's this online uh, platform that actually has this little online recording studio. So you enter the studio and you leave it. We're obviously not in the same space. Um, maybe one day we'll get a little podcast studio. Um, I like that interview. It was fun. The, uh, he really did have an interesting year. Lots of, lots of stuff going on, which, you know, as he's going through his list of accomplishments and, um, there were plenty of them, plenty of good ones that's what sort of leads me to ask about politics. I know it's sort of an uncomfortable question for them to answer. Um, I mean, I did the same thing with Lieutenant Governor Ainsworth. People are curious and they are nowhere near ready to start answering those questions for real, not ready to say, actually, yes, I'm, I'm totally running for governor, but people do have it on their minds. And so I like to ask it really to just gauge where they are in the, you know, process of answering. You can kind of, even though they're not saying yes or no, they're really tilting their hand. Um, there's a lot you can kind of pick up on, on whether or not they're really thinking about it. Um, and so we'll, we'll see. I mean, if, if you had to say right now, I mean, obviously I'd, I'd say Ainsworth and Marshall are the top 
uh, candidates to, to run for governor. You look at polling, they, they're clearly at the top in terms of name recognition. Marshall might have an advantage there, actually, um, whereas Ainsworth might have a resource advantage. Um, but they actually, I mean, but they're, they're both from Marshall County, share similar worldviews on politics. So it, it would kind of be interesting to see how they would differentiate themselves versus each other. But one, good, one great point he made was in Alabama politics, the one rule you can count on is that things will change. And so we really don't know what all might happen before candidates start lining up. Um, but again, we're, we're barely a year after the last election. So maybe we shouldn't get uh, too out front uh, in front of our skis. Um, wow. Been a busy uh, week, been a busy month, been a busy year. Um, one of the reasons we didn't have a podcast last week is I was in Birmingham all of last week. Uh, we had, we filmed a Capitol journal episode at the judicial, the special judicial conference. They were celebrating 50 years since the judicial article of the Alabama constitution was reformed, uh, re-ratified and, um, really cool story there. And, um, was blessed to be able to hear some of those stories from folks who were there back in 1973 and even some before. Uh, so go watch that. If, if, if you get um, a little time and you're, you're curious about how an actual piece of constitutional reform occurred in Alabama against all odds, you, uh, you might find it interesting. I've heard a lot of good feedback about it and I really appreciate those who have reached out to say they appreciated it. Um, and so that was on Monday. We had three days at Alabama Public Television where it was all about, or I was two days, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, um, all about uh, a strategic plan. We we're in the strategic planning um, mode for looking into the future about what we want APT to look like in the future. And for me, that means Capital Journal. Where do you take the show? How much, you know? How can we grow the news um, value of it? And and I'd appreciate any kind of feedback on that. Um, you know, we we are a pretty small team at Capital Journal. So two days of that. Then Thursday, I was at the back at the Florentine for the Innovate Alabama event. This was their State of Innovation. Uh, celebration awards banquet, uh, which was really cool. Um, featured a fireside chat with Secretary, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. I actually got to interview Condoleezza Rice, um, and so we're we're putting that together for another special episode of Capital Journal that'll air um, this Friday, uh, this Friday at seven thirty and Sunday at noon. So I'm excited about that too. Two kind of special episodes. We started this really with the BCA episode of you know, going on the road, doing it remotely, kind of focusing in on one issue, um, and have, have had some good feedback. You know, we're still committed to doing news, you know, letting folks know what ha what is happening in their state government throughout the weeks. But there's no secret that when you get to the holiday season, there's just a lot less going on government wise. And so, um, 
this is a good time to have these special episodes. I think you're going to really like this Innovate Alabama episodes. A lot of cool um, things that were said, not just from uh, Condi, but uh, from a lot of folks. So you'll, you'll want to check that out. And it's, yeah, it's just been a busy time. We're actually, um, you know, preparing for the new year. We're preparing for this legislative issues breakfast. You know, last year, Alabama Daily News hosted it's the first ever legislative issues breakfast. It was just this idea to say, all right, you know, let's have an event that is really focused on issues. It's not necessarily like pushing something or having an agenda. Um, and it's not necessarily so, such fluff that it, it doesn't you know, matter. Let's focus it. And, and so that year, it was, or I guess I mean, it happened in, in March of this past year, focused on economic development because the game plan bills were coming out, which made sense. That was topical. We had all the House and Senate leadership on stage to, to really ask questions about that. Um, and so this year, I mean, I had so much good feedback, so much good feedback about the event. In fact, had um, folks from organizations come and say, hey, we'd love to help sponsor this next year. You know, we'd love to be a part of it, have our names attached to it. And so that's really working out. We've um, been contacted uh, by several sponsors who are going to help um, help us you know, pay for the facility. It's not cheap to have an event at the Renaissance. Uh, and and hopefully help expand that, expand the capacity and, and our ability to, to have a quality event. And so our theme is going to be education in the workforce. And those are sort of two intertwined issues. And having, uh, you know, when sometimes when Republicans are in charge in, con in Congress, they take the Labor Committee and they label it education in the workforce. And that's where that phrase kind of comes from. But I think it's a perfect theme for this year going into the legislative session because so much is focused policy-wise, legislation-wise on education, first and foremost. You could say that's always the biggest issue of the session, um, but also the workforce. And, you know, everybody's talking about the workforce participation rate, how that is a big hindrance to Alabama truly growing its economy. Um, there's all these metrics for you know unemployment and all these things, um, but but you know we, our population has grown some, but our economy like GDP really hasn't grown that much. It needs to grow a lot more, and you're never going to get there until you have pr more productivity and more workers. Um, complicated issue, but I think it's something we should talk about, and I think we should talk about it in relation to education. All, you know the foundations of how people end up in the workforce. So I'm really excited about that. Got some good panelists uh, that I'm talking to, not quite confirmed. We'll we'll um, know, we'll have more to announce on that later. But we're working on a really great uh, legislative issues breakfast. That's um, Wednesday, February the 7th. That's the day after the session begins, the morning after State of the State, if you want to think about it that way. Um, speaking of State of the State, we will be airing that live, just like we have the last two years, live on Alabama Public Television. We'll, we'll have about two hours worth of programming. The governor's speech, if it's anything like the last couple of years, you're looking at 30 minutes max, and that includes applause. So we'll have some time before the speech to do some you know, commentary and 
predicting predictions maybe. Um, we'll have some time afterwards to do some reactions, some analysis. Of course, you'll have the Democratic response. Uh, last last year, we did that in sort of interview form um, with uh, State Representative Barbara Drummond, which I think was was cool. It wasn't just like into the into the teleprompter kind of thing. So look forward to that. Back to the breakfast. If you are interested in sponsoring a table or or um, helping sponsor the event. Please let me know. We have some still available. Uh, the, the room is kind of filling up, but we, we still have a, a room for a couple more. So if your organization is interested in sponsoring the breakfast, having your um, you know, name and logo uh, attached to it and, and um, featured, uh, please reach out to me. Everybody knows my email and uh, we'll, we'll, get you, we'll get you going. Um, all right. With that, I think it's everything. Probably our last in the weeds of the year, unless I just really get ranty and rambly next week and and, 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 uh, and get some cabin fever or something. But thank you for listening to our podcast. It's really fun for us to get to do, um, but it's most fun when we hear feedback from listeners who say, hey, that was a really good interview with so-and-so, or I love it when you and Mary talked about this. That makes it all worthwhile. What would also make it worthwhile is if you went right now to your Apple Podcasts ratings and gave us a, a five-star rating and write a little review about what you thought. That does two things. It helps more, you know, it helps others um, find the podcast, uh, your rating does, and it makes Mary and I feel pretty good about what we're doing, and um, that's really nice. So with that, Merry Christmas, happy holidays to everybody, and we'll see you next year.